So with everything that I had heard going into season three, so far I've been almost impressed uh, by yeah. these first three episodes. They've been solid, great, awesome episodes. Of course, we've had some great writers on them, so that's helped. So I don't know what will happen in the future. We obviously have 21 more episodes of this season to go. But so far, so good. That's what I'm saying. Well, I think one of the things that happens is you establish a certain level of quality and then you start getting some clinkers and people are like, oh. And so it doesn't take like the whole season. You know, like there are episodes of or, uh, like seasons of, let's say, Battlestar Galactica, the, the reboot. Okay. In which you're kind of like, oh, they've lost their way. They don't know whether it's harder with with. Uh, Archie TV than episodic yeah. TV. Episodic TV, you need some some strong episodes to kind of make the season feel like it's sensible. Yeah. But Archie TV, once the writers like don't know where they're going, you know, once you're like in the season four or something, they're like, well, we finished all the plots that we had, you know, in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and the episodes kind of feel like that. Like, right. it's just a big, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because when we hit, not us, but when you watch something like uh, Clone Wars, Star Wars Clone Wars, or the Book of Boba Fett, where suddenly you have these episodes where people are like, well, that was filler till we get to the next yeah. thing or whatever. So that's when people start calling those episodes like, oh, filler till the next one. And, you know, I, I haven't watched enough Clone I mean, I've, I've seen some Clone Wars. Yeah. Uh, certainly not comprehensive. I. I haven't watched any Boba Fett. Uh-huh. And so I don't know what these filler episodes are like. But I, I wonder if sometimes, you know, we've talked about those three things, people like setting, plot, and character, right? Yeah. If you do a character episode, that's going to be a filler episode to some people. Yeah. Even though to other people it's like, oh, we learned so much about, uh, you know, character Z, right? Uh-huh. Or setting episodes, right? Oh, we yeah. learned so much about planet x or you know this thing that we've talked about yeah so bad and other people are like yawn <laughs> you know i think that's happens. exactly it you know it'll be like there'll be things that are like setting the plate for the, yeah, yeah. For the big thing you know so right. it's like well we got to get our all of our people into position and you know maybe they'll have a little character stuff here and there throughout throughout the episode but it's like oh we're just kind of moving everybody towards yeah. the finale you know what i mean so right. and if it's not done in an interesting way or or in a way that people feel is like eventful, then it's like, eh, okay, so we're but setting you, up the table. We're setting the table for the next one. You have to spend time at Obi Wan Kenobi's house, in which he's explaining all that stuff that he explains. Right. Because all that stuff gets paid off, and some of it doesn't get paid off until much, much later. Yeah. Like you know what happened to my father? Uh, a pupil of mine. Darth Vader turned to evil and killed your father, right? That's got payoff. But all of a sudden, it's like, 
Obi-Wan told you, you know, something else about your father, but I am your father. Yep. That's that's some real payoff to something that had been established as being something else. And I think one of the problems you get with the the most recent trilogy is they don't set stuff up in order to pay it off later. Right? Right. And so you don't get those those moments of, oh, this makes sense. This is a, a reveal. There was lots and lots of subverting your expectations. But none of it was because they had set something up in an intentional way to then subvert it later. Mm-hmm. Right? Obviously, the ultimate in subverting your expectations is, Luke, I am your father. Yeah. But, but nobody was, was you know, angry <laughs> with Empire Strikes Back for that. <laughs> Right, yeah, that's true. We, we were blown away and like, oh my goodness, this is this is you know amazing and shocking. Yeah, Be- because it had been properly set up and not not in the scene before, or not not ever, but way back. Yeah. Oh, we should do introductions. <laughs> That'd be a good idea. My name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to you from Platinum, Houston, is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go. Well, this week we are talking about the Paradise Syndrome. As I said, another fine episode and another fine um, entry into the, uh, the the Star Trek canon, really. So it feels to me like uh, we're hitting some familiar notes. I'm going to harken back to season one. Okay. Uh, I, I just imagined a little bit of uh, Shore Leave. It's a Paradise mm-hmm. Planet. Right, but yep. things go astray. Another paradise planet from season one is uh, is actually with the, with the paradise. This side of paradise, mm-hmm. where they have the pods and Spock falls in love. Right. Um, but also Galileo Seven. Oh, interesting. In which uh, Spock takes command of the shuttle crew, and he's got Scotty and. McCoy with him, and uh, his uh, first series command doesn't go so well. Right. And so I, I kind of felt like, and part of it's because it's a Paradise Planet episode, right? So mm-hmm. call, callbacks to, or at least you know, the same feel of some of those other Paradise Planets. Yeah. But I also felt like we had a little Galileo Seven mixed in there. Well, it's funny because Robert Justman felt that it was a bit of a Friday's Child thrown in where we got a primitive primitive uh planet and we have a pregnant woman and those things that we get with a little bit of gamesters thro- thrown in uh and with uh all mixed up with a bit of the apple okay so <laughs> right exactly yeah, yeah. so many many different episodes come to mind in this one plus we could also put this in the in the bucket labeled parallel earths yes now of course in this one we're going to lampshade that and provide some enduring Star Trek lore that, that you've been referring to, I think, the whole whole podcast. I know, right? The preservers, there they are, finally showing up. It's official and canon. Yep. That was another Robert Justman thing, was is that he thought that with the Native Americans there, that that too brought, uh, uh, brought too close to a parallel situation. Uh, just to tag off what you were saying there. So we do get... You know, the longer the show goes on, 
and because the show does does a lot of the same stuff over and over, right? Yeah. We get episodes that we could easily put into buckets. It's not like every episode's unique, because that's actually a hard show to make sense of, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is possible to get the sense that, like, we're just doing the same stuff over and over again. Now, I think, especially in episodic television, where it's been two seasons since we saw, let's say, these episodes. Uh, he may be referring to more recent episodes, second season episodes. I think the Apple's in the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't necessarily call back to those because those were like Strange New Worlds episodes, right? Right. In which, yeah, there were primitive people, but they were aliens with strange stuff going on. I really think of the Apple as being a, a computers controlling this planet episode. Right. Which is, is coming up in uh, And I Have Touched the Sky. And you can see where the creative team would, would feel like we've got no ideas, we're just doing the same. We're just like rehashing old ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? And on the one hand, the fans can be like, no, but it was good. We liked it. Cause, <laughs> yeah. Because it wasn't that reductive or that repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, shows fit into buckets, right? This is a computer controls the planet. This is a paradise world. This is a parallel earth. This is a whatever. But uh-huh. but it was, it was done in a new way. It was interesting. It, it didn't feel like oh, wait, I've seen this before. It was like, yeah. oh, no. It was it was superficially similar, but not the same episode. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. I think it, it may have been in this, uh, talking about this episode, or it may have been the previous episode, but that was also, I think it was in the last one, and I think I even read that memo, was that, you know, that's what Roddenberry says. Roddenberry's like, I mean, yes, we, there are ideas that we are rehashing, but we're doing them. We're doing them in brand new ways. You can't just shut us down by saying like, "Oh nope, we did that plot before," or you know, we had that idea or that theme previously. It's like, well, we've no, already they're... done a space battle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, okay, that's kind of reductive. <laughs> yeah. Well, Margaret Armin wrote this episode. Uh, she wrote the Gamesters of. Uh, uh, Triskillian. Uh, ah, we, we will find out where the Quatloos come from. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Roddenberry liked that episode so much that he invited her to write another one. Her idea that sparked this episode was the modern notion that humans craved, loved, and wanted to be loved. Which, of course, hits on the very Moulin Rouge theme of the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and be loved in return. Which is also weird how that movie keeps popping up in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's because it's one of our references. Uh, exactly, exactly. So uh, the first part of the first draft of this episode is very similar to how it appears on the episode, except that instead of an obelisk, it was a totem pole. So you can see uh, how that could be, how that might work. Kirk is on the planet for a longer time, having had a kid with uh, Miramani. And when the Enterprise crew returns, Kirk leads a battle against them, thinking that they are invaders to the planet. Kirk gets his memory back just before killing Spock, and then they actually beam down into the chamber as opposed to having to find a way to open it, which is funny because uh, that is a great idea. <laughs> I'll just chalk it up to the fact that the chamber was very cramped and uh, it would be impossible to be beam down into and move on. And it may also be made of a material that's 
uh, you know, like hard to you know, do the sensors through. They talked about right. that beginning of this episode. That is also true, yes. Uh, she writes this at the end. Uh, she didn't die in the first draft, uh, Miramami. But uh, their child, imbued with the heritage of two worlds, will carry on the Mohican culture and pass it intact into succeeding generations. Just as the Vanish super race had planned it, and just as it should be. So the idea of, of the preservers was always there. And uh, that, and it's sort of touched upon early in this episode that there was a plan for the uh, for for them to send somebody who would knock the asteroid out of the sky, but uh, they don't really dive into it too much. Stan Robertson from NBC thought that there was too much story in this episode and asked it to be cut back. He basically said that each of these ideas could be their own episode as opposed to having to, you know, cram it all into one, which was true because uh, the first several drafts of this episode were like 80 pages. And uh, for those of you who know, you know, and if you don't know, then uh, usually however long you want the episode to be, say 55 minutes, 40, 54 minutes, that's how many pages you want the script to be as well. So coming in at 80 minutes was way too much. And uh, as we saw in the last episode, they had too much to shoot because uh, the script was too long, and that put them into uh, overtime in a big, bad way. So, I mean, what you want to do, I think, in, and again, to, you know, talk about keeping it fresh and and avoiding doing the same thing over and over again. You do want to do things like combine ideas. Yeah. Right. Like I like the fact that this is, let's say. Uh, this side of paradise slash Galileo seven. Uh-huh. Right. You've got, instead of those being two separate ideas, now they're clashing. Uh, so they send it back to Armin to do uh, another draft on it. It takes her an extra two weeks to get uh, the script right in her mind. Uh, but they got back a great script, similar to what we had seen on screen, but again, too long. Uh, the ending was again, different. Kirk wanted to bring Miramani back on board the Enterprise uh, with the child. But, of course, she was scared and didn't go. So he tells her at the end, tell him that he is of two worlds, Miramani, and a proud heritage from both. The producers, Freiberg and Singer, called Roddenberry with a new take on this episode. They said, what if Kirk doesn't have amnesia, but when he is found by the natives, he has to play along with the idea of him being a god because of the Prime Directive? Which is an interesting idea. But Roddenberry afterwards drafts a letter saying, I have learned that there is considerable danger in throwing a lot of new elements into a story at this stage. When you have a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end like we have here, my advice is to fight first draft nervousness, which often results in confusing both story and writer with second thoughts on basic story elements. Maybe we can use that down the line, he says. Margaret Armin, uh, Armin later said that I feel like Paradise Syndrome was one that Fred Freiberg would would have let go had he had the chance. Fred was looking for all action pieces. That's really why he wasn't crazy about the Paradise Syndrome. He didn't think that the he didn't think that there was enough violence and terrifying action in it. He didn't realize that the suspense would come from the characters and their relationships and so forth. There was some action in it, but no monsters. Fred was always looking for action pieces, whereas Gene was looking for the subtlety that is Star Trek action but with people carrying the story yeah I, I i don't think star trek is all action right 
I think that's a mistake. I think it's one of the problems with the movies is that they're looking for too much action mm-hmm. rather than doing some of the other things that I think Star Trek does well. Right. But sadly, when you're looking at the box office, you look at something like Wrath of Khan. Uh, I think Undiscovered Country is a great balance of everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you look at like Search for Spock, uh, you know, uh, Insurrection, those which which do more story people elements and yet don't don't score as well in the box office. So I think that that's it's a good thing that Star Trek's back on TV so we can have a little more character uh, development in them. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was watching something that was a movie that now is back on TV. And again, just being able to sort of, oh, I know what it is. It's Moon Knight. Uh, I, I don't think you've been watching it. But Moon Knight has been, uh, is great. It's, 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 it's telling a story about the, uh, you know, about the origins of Moon Knight and, you know, how his character becomes Moon. But really, it's a, it's a look into the psychology of a guy who's got, you know, a split personality, who's got, uh, you know, but is also warring with Egyptian gods and blah, blah, blah. You know, there is not a lot of action scenes, especially in this last episode, episode five. There are not a lot of action scenes that have been going on in the episode. And so it's really great because, again, it's it really is all about character and really all about getting into this guy's headspace. And yet it's it's fascinating. And it's it's just a great intro. You know, it's a great, not intro, but uh, it's a great um, thing for the MCU to do something that's very different, that doesn't have to have a big CGI battle scene at the end of it. But again, because right. it's on TV, because it can take its time, because it doesn't have as much writing on it financially, they can kind of take those swings. And in this case, it really works out. I think one of the things, and we see this in television, and they, we talked about it, I think, a little in the first season, is that once you once you've built your sets, once you like got your today we would say you know once your CGI models have been built, but then it'd be mm-hmm. like physical models. Um, you know, it's possible, especially let so they did six movies for uh, for Star original. Trek the original, yeah, and. You know, it's possible to say not every movie has to make a gazillion dollars, right? Right. Um, because once you you built your set, you could make a movie for let's say eighty million rather than one hundred and fifty million. Then uh, you could do things like, well, let's let's make a different kind of episode. It doesn't have to be high adventure. Even though, yeah, we're not going to make this. And of course, the studio is because it's a business. They're never interested in saying, "Well, we're building something that'll pay off over." Now, what are we talking about here? Like, how many anniversaries have we had? Right. Right. Star, Star Trek is in its mid fifties. Yeah. You know that when you know that something's going to last that long, then you can say, "Yeah, let's go ahead and like build something that's deep and rich because well, it'll be paying us off forever." You're thinking, well, there's the box office, and then there's what? There's some trivial dollars at the end that, like, don't amount to anything. Yeah. Which is an odd thing to be thinking of, let's say, by the time you're at Star Trek Three, right? Right. <laughs> you know, like, hmm, this, this is a 20-year-old, you know, franchise we're making here. <laughs> Maybe it's got legs. Yeah. 
Sadly, they never did. Sadly, they never did. Yeah. Well. So Michael O'Herlihy was originally scheduled to direct this episode. He was a friend of Gene Roddenberry's, and he had uh, directed for Roddenberry's show, The Lieutenant, which we've talked about. And he was hired to do uh, the same for the first star uh, for his first season Star Trek episode. Tomorrow is yesterday, if you recall that episode, and uh, was given a contract, which rarely happens, to direct also the Paradise Syndrome and uh, the upcoming Children Shall Lead. However, something that usually doesn't happen in television uh, directorial contracts is that he put in there that if you know he got a commitment to do a movie or even more importantly, something for Disney that he would then <clears throat> he would then uh, take those instead and drop out of Star Trek. Now, of course, I had forgotten that Michael O'Hurley had directed Tomorrow is Yesterday. However, in the book, <laughs> Cashman and Osborne point out that he also directed the Disney movie Smith with an exclamation <laughs> point. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember Smith. Well, unfortunately for uh, O'Hurley, he, Smith was not a box office success and uh, did not help him uh, in a career move. But he was like, you know, back in the day, Star Trek was just, uh, you know, guys in weird pajamas. It wasn't anything. Uh, it wasn't what at all what it you know, went on to become. So well, little did the, he know. The thing about working for Disney is that it could lead to more work for Disney. Exactly. So you might end up doing something that's totally forgettable. But then, like, your next movie might be The Love Bug. <laughs> right, exactly. Now you've got me curious. I want to go look to see what's on his IMDb. Can't wait to type in Smith exclamation point. <laughs> there it is, 1969. Michael O'Hurley. Filmography. Oh, he did episodes of Hunter in the 80s. Oh yeah. Yeah. Looks like he did a bunch of. It looks like it was mostly back to TV after uh, after Smith. Oh, he even did an episode of Judd for the Defense. Dun, dun, dun. Medical Center. Oh, he did do stuff for the Magical World of Disney on, uh, on ABC. Directed an episode of MASH, an episode of Canon. Did an Evil Knievel TV movie in 1974. He did an episode of Logan's Run, the TV series, which I didn't know was a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did an episode of Magnum P.I., did an episode of, uh, oh, did several episodes of The Fall Guys. Fall Guy, nine episodes, two episodes of Miami Vice, 20 episodes of The A-Team. No T.J. Hooker in there? No T.J. Hooker in there, sadly. Could have reunited with Shatner. Oh, well. Well, at least he went on to direct for the next, you know, 20 years. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a career-ending thing for him. <laughs> oh, my God. Smith exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> well, up until this podcast, I had never even heard of the movie, so I'm sure right, that's right. the way it was with other people. I'm sure it was, yeah. <laughs> so uh, in this episode... So check uh, out that Smith exclamation point trailer. <laughs> I think it is on YouTube. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> Matt from the... Editing booth couch. I tried to look up and find the Smith trailer, which I swear was on YouTube. Guess what? It's not on YouTube. But I did find two clips from Smith! Exclamation point. And those two clips, which equal five minutes worth of footage 
from the movie, not all of which I'm going to play here. But just listen to the number of times somebody says the name Smith. Tracking down this scrawny beef. Smith! Everything that we own is riding on this hay crop. I guess now we see why the movie is called Smith, with an exclamation point, because clearly people yell Smith a lot in this movie. All right, enough about Smith. Let's get back to the show. Uh, So instead for this episode, we got Judd Turner directing. He was only 28 at the time and had only a few credits under his belt. But uh, as we will find out at the end of this episode, he did such a good job. They brought him back a few more times. Sabrina Scharf was 24. She was a former Playboy bunny. I feel like that's not the first time we've said those words on this podcast. And she was, <laughs> she was cast as Miramani. Uh, she had been working in television since 1965, including playing a Native American in an episode of Daniel Boom, which featured Jeffrey Hunter. So I feel like back Trek. in the day, you know, here we are in the 60s, right? Right. The idea that Playboy Bunny is a possible entree to like legitimate screen work, right, was a, was a thing. Mm-hmm. Today, I don't think that's like true anymore. Right, but it might lead to like modeling gigs. You know, it might yeah. lead to Victoria's Secret. It might lead to, you know, and something else that could lead into then, you know, like hey, we need someone as a background performer in this, and then you know, just works our way to. Smaller guest roles. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just being a Playboy Bunny isn't... Well, I don't know. They had reality shows for a while that were right, all about Playboy Bunnies, but... I wouldn't call that legitimate screen work. <laughs> well, neither would I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that the, you know, you do an episode of Star Trek, and then, you know, maybe you're the, uh, you know, the girl who has a problem in an, uh, a Rockford Files... Right. And then suddenly you're a recurring, you know, bit player or, you know, person of the week on those kinds of shows that needed persons of the week. Right. And then, like, we, we have seen people on Star Trek who you look at their IMDb and it's like they've done every show under the sun. But they were yeah. on, you know, one or two episodes. Well, uh, Sabrina Scharf uh, had a uh, pretty decent... Um guest star uh guest star history she had done between like 65 and 68 had done like 10 things uh you know 10 different guest roles on 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 shows she ends up being an easy writer uh shortly after this and then um let's see look looking quickly at her imdb you know she went on for another six seven years to be doing doing guest roles yeah it looks like she was a semi-regular on the original hawaii 50 too you can imagine that, like, after a career like that, someone's like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So that was fun. 
uh, I made a lot of money. Yep. You know, I've now bought myself a nice house somewhere in the L.A. area. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm getting these residual checks all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, maybe I don't need to keep working. And plus, uh, now they want me to play people's moms. And <laughs> right. I, I'm, getting, I'm getting older parts. I'm like, eh, whatever. Well, she was 30. Let's see. It looks like, I don't know, some shit. She was on the streets of San Francisco. And then she did like two more guest spots on another show called Harry O, which I've never heard of. But uh, it looks like that was her last one. But, you know, she'd be 30 by then. So, you know, maybe it's like time to settle down, start a family, do, you know, yeah, that could, that whatever she, want, she wanted to go on and do, whatever that was. Yeah, you, you see, so you meet some like serious person with a real job. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you know, I can, I made my, my bank. Yep. I'm getting residuals. I'll now settle down with a real person and have a real life. That's right. Well, that's all I have for behind the scenes stuff. So as always, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So I thought that it was, just to start off, that this episode is going to be a little bit different than some of the other stuff we've seen. It's just the way this one begins, with this, like, beautiful pan over a lake and over uh, over trees and stuff. We you know, a lot of this... cold open. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, and it's, a, you know, just a beautiful, like, usually, you know, you'd see, like, a shot of the Enterprise, or, you know, they'd be immediately built beaming down whereas like first we just start off with this like beautiful like landscape which of course they're on location they might as well use it for all it's for all it's worth well, it's but, also uh, another way to to kind of keep things fresh right it's right. not usually let's start because that's the other problem you can get right mm-hmm. is that your show becomes a formula well first we start on the bridge and we explain what we're doing here and right. then then we, we go down to the transporter where scotty will beam us down Mm-hmm. And there'll there'll be a joke in the transporter room, and then right. <laughs> and you're like, well, okay, that's a little too formulaic. So finally, our triad of Spock, Kirk, and Bones beam down. They are in Upper Franklin Canyon in the Hollywood Hills, one of the largest freshwater reservoirs in L.A. It provided the scenery for the opening title sequence to the Andy Griffith Show as well. This is the same link where Andy. Uh, where Andy Taylor and Opie skim rocks. So that's kind of cool. Well, it's also amusing how often we have a Mayberry Star Trek connection. (laughs) Well, you know, it's all Desilu, so... Yeah. Bones and Kirk smell honeysuckle and orange blossoms in the air. What are the odds of another planet forming exactly like Earth? Asks Kirk. Astronomical, Captain, says Spock. And yet here we are. I <laughs> know, <laughs> right? Exactly. But again, like you said, they kind of they kind of lampshade it by saying they do. They hey, give us a we reason. got the preservers. And even even McCoy's comments. I've always wondered why there were so many parallel Earths. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now we know. Uh, they quickly find the obelisk. They can't scan it, like we mentioned. And Spock determines it would take a long time to study this, but he estimates that the ability to create such a thing. That uh, the people would have to be of equal or above their own technological level. You know, watching Lower Decks, uh, one of the, the conceits of the show, right, is mm-hmm. that the Enterprise would discover a strange obelisk, and then the Cerritos is called in to like do that long-term study, right? Right, right. Because you know they're busy; they got to go on to the next planet of the week. They're a they're a capital ship. They're a serious ship. 
We find it. You scan it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they come back and they do all the routine scans and the, right. you know, set the team up, which does make some sense why we don't see that kind of stuff in the show that we're watching, right? That they right. report it back and a team. And we also see stuff like uh, in the movies, like those little Oberths, you know, those small science ships showing up and doing stuff. Yeah. And that could be, you know, it could be a little ship like that, too, with just all science team that shows up and does stuff. Well, I think some of the first season episodes we talked about, like the, uh, like, for instance, the, the, the first contact crew that would then have to show up after, you know, the Enterprise made the initial contact. But now we're going to send in another group and they're going to take care yep. of setting you guys up and making you federation or doing whatever it is they're going to do. Studying the primitive society on the planet, whatever it is. We find out that they were passing this beautiful planet on their way to deflect an asteroid that was headed toward this planet, and they have 30 minutes to reach the deflection point. It's, it's odd that you'd like say, well, we got 30 minutes. Let's, let's just stop off and take a look. Yeah, eh, nothing's going to go wrong on our way there. It's fine. I'd like with 30 minutes, no, no, no. <laughs> let's get to the thing early. Right, exactly. Because for the we reason can come back. Spock explains, yeah, that 30 minutes is actually a huge advantage. Yeah. Like, why make the deflection point on time? Be early and, and deflect additionally. Yeah. Again, we can always come back. As Spock says later. We assume the deflection point must be set. Uh, so, was, you know, so, start that again. So we assume that they must have to reach this deflection point at this very specific time so as to not deflect it towards another planet. Like, we can't get there early, because if we get there early, then we'll send it off into the sun, and it'll call solar flares or something, which, again, I feel is like a very next-generation thing that we would have gotten. You know what I mean? Like, they would have gone into the science as to why we have to be there at this specific... We don't want to send it into this other planet that's, you know, a, a gas giant because of whatever reason. So... Uh, but there's no, like you were talking about last time, there's no real reason why we, given to us anyway, why we have to be there at the exact, you know, in 30 minutes exactly. Why being there a day earlier would have mattered or being there an hour early would have mattered. Yeah, because, you know, you don't have to like just keep deflecting hard, you know, like, well, what's over there? Who knows? Just keep pushing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could, you, once you got it where you wanted it to go, you could be like, okay. Done now. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, we got half an hour. We can go back to the planet. <laughs> we can go back to the planet. Crazy. Uh, they see that there are life forms living up the hill, and hey, since they got 30 minutes, let's go investigate. It's a native community that looks like the Native Americans of uh, North America, which Bones also points out. Bones wonders if they should tell them about the asteroid. Spock, of course, rightfully points out that talking about spacecraft would only confuse and frighten them. Besides, I wonder, the Prime Directive maybe would be an issue? Well, Kurt, why, why tell people you're about to die? <laughs> right? I guess just let it happen. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing if you show up and go, uh, your planet's about to be struck by an asteroid, but we've noticed that there's only 2,000 people here, and It'll be a little cramped, but we can all get you on the ship. Right. What ship? What? What are you talking about? Well, it's a little bit complicated, but. <laughs> and then you move everybody and you're like, well, we've totally screwed with their society, but we saved them all. Right. 
But if you're just going to be like, oh, by the way, Doomsday is coming. <laughs> the end is nigh. Bye. <laughs> twinkle, 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 twinkle. Right, exactly. <laughs> they must be the evil gods. Why are they yeah. saving us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kirk says, ah, well, let's get back to the ship. Along the way, Kirk gets thoughtful in a mood about how uh, about living just as the natives are. No command decisions, no, no, uh, no heavy pressure. Bones tells us that in the 20th century, we would have called that the Tahiti syndrome. That's not a thing. I know because I googled it. <laughs> and all you get is Star Trek. Exactly, exactly. That was all it says. Uh, this is from Memory Alpha. It says, uh, it was an attraction to a peaceful and uncomplicated environment far away from the need to make decisions into which they could escape. It was said to be particularly common by overpressured leader types such as starship captains. So this is a, a Star Trek trope of its own. Okay. Right? We see this in the very first episode with Pike. Right. In which he's like, oh, the, the burden of command is so hard. And, I, you know, so he's there. One of the things that they create for him to imagine as, you know, why don't you stay on our planet? Was that scene where they're on a plateau somewhere and they've got the horses and he's got yep. sugar cubes in his pocket. And just stay here. It's, it's peaceful. There's no yeah. command. Just, you can ride your horse. And then it's like all the captains have, you know, Picard in his vineyard. All the captains seem to have their weakness of like, well, I seem totally devoted, so devoted to my ship that even some alien seductive, you know, pheromones or tears or whatever can't break my love of my ship. Although right. you give me a nice, you know, pasture and some horses, <laughs> some pretty trees and the smell of orange blossoms, and I'm gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick, Tahiti, of course, is a Polynesian island. The average temperature on Tahiti is 85.6 degrees. It's in the 80s even in January. That's how beautiful it is there. It is idyllic with beautiful mountains and vegetation, trees for years. People go there and say they never want to come back, hence right, yeah. GR's use of the Tahiti syndrome. <clears throat> it well, was his idea. It's also the case that uh, Star Trek is kind of based on the voyages of, of Captain Cook through the right. Pacific. And these are the exact kind of places that Cook was going. A couple other things about Tahiti. Uh, it is one of the most expensive places to go. For, uh, for you and I living in Texas, the cheapest yeah. tickets I could find during peak, peak time, which of course was out of the wet seasons that exist in the winter months, were, was over $1,500 just to fly there. You fly to the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. It's a long time. Also, for Marvel fans, we also know that Tahiti is the Tahiti Project is also how Agent Coulson survived his death from the first Avengers movies, but we don't know much more about it other than the name. All right, well, enough about Tahiti. Kirk says he wants to take another look at the obelisk before we leave. Of course, because we can't just leave. We got to tempt fate. Yeah, because there's a timeline going on here. Exactly. So let's, let's just do as much extraneous stuff as possible. Exactly. Which, of course, we find out later is, is bad because it, it causes Spock to have to drain the engines. 
Um, also, uh, as I had to spell obelisk a hundred times, it's a, just a very weird spelling word. <laughs> O-B-E-L-I-S-K. Yeah. I don't know. I had yeah. trouble. I had trouble for days spelling that one. It's not an English word. That's right. Spock tells Bones that his research will have to stop once they've, uh, will have to stop until once we've stopped the asteroid. Kirk walks up, feeling the strange letters engraved on the obelisk. He then calls up to the ship, tells them to get ready to beam us aboard, when a trap door opens on the base and Captain Kirk falls down into it. Dun, dun, dun. Inside the obelisk, we see him pull himself up into some sort of computer, which zaps him with electricity. Da, da, da. Now, this is a weird actor moment. It's Shatner, so I know, but I'm just saying. Kirk, like, reaches up into the air while being zapped, and I don't know why. Is it like a reflexive action? Is he thinking, my ship? My ship? My ship? I don't know. Strange actor choice. However, it does work because you can sort of sense the pain. So what do I know? I'm just complaining. Kirk then slumps over the computer as we go to the credits. Dun, dun, dun. A page and three quarters worth of notes. And we're not even out of the tape, out of the teaser. <laughs> Trek can really be dense, I say. Back to it. Captain's log, start eight, eight, four. Whoops, four, eight, four, two, point six. First officer, Spock, commanding. Numerous search parties and repeated sensor probes of the area have failed to locate Captain Kirk. Spock decides that they have to beam up. I paused that to write some notes. And at the same time, I was thinking, Bones, don't say it. Don't say it, because we got to go deflect an asteroid. I unpause, and sure enough, Bone says, leaving? You can't be serious. Well, I don't know why the obvious solution is, isn't, well, I'm going to go and take the Enterprise, but I'm going to beam down some security and you know medical personnel, and you lead a search party. You're right. That'd be an even better idea. And you know what's even better? I'm going to send them to you on a shuttlecraft. <laughs> so that in, in the event that you need... Like, to leave the planet, you could do so. <laughs> You're overthinking this. <laughs> well, you know what we could have had, which I think would be much more next generation, uh -huh. is a proper A and B story. What we right. get is an A and B story where Kirk is by himself, right? But there could have been one in which there's like a search party, and then they find him, and they're like, Oh, he seems to have like lost his memory, and we can't just like go in there dressed like this and be like, "Hi, let's uh, violate the prime directive," right. and then talk to a dude who's got amnesia. <laughs> and so they're like on the outside doing. For the first half, they're like looking for him, yeah. And then the second half, they're like, "How do we get the captain back?" It would have made more sense, but it would have complicated what they probably feared was an already complicated script. True. Although they could have never found him either, right? Yep. We could have basically just hand-whipped, yeah, they're down there looking for him, and they don't find him. And then we get that scene at the end where they beam down, luckily, just in time, whereas what would have made more sense is they're like, ooh, there's some kind of commotion. They're all going to that thing. Let's check it out. Let's go check it and out. And that's why they show up and save the captain. Because we've established at that point that there was like a search party on the planet. Yeah, it could have been an interesting story where, you know, Kirk still makes his way to the tribe and they still think he's a god. And then, yeah. like, everybody's watching from a distance, like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, we can't just go in there. And he doesn't know who we are anyway. So, like, yeah. how are we going to? 
Spock, ever logical, points out the most practical thing by saying, once we deflect the asteroid, we can come right back and find the captain. Slow your roll, Doctor. <laughs> but of course, we're a starship. We could do two things at once. <laughs> right, right, right. But they never, he never says that. Spock then gives the viewers at home an analogy with the two rocks about why we have to stop this moon-sized asteroid. Thank you, Mr. Exposition. Right, exactly. And it's funny because um, the only explanation we get as to why we have to stop this is in 30 minutes is because it will be harder to stop <laughs> the closer it gets to the planet. And That's therefore, it's easier to stop had we not stopped at the silly planet in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Bones finally backs down and uh, backs down and they beam aboard. Inside the obelisk, we find Kirk lost and with amnesia. He feels like he should know what a phaser is. It seems familiar, but the idea is just, just out of reach. We also get this weird voiceover, right? We've never seen this really before in Trek. And in fact, the reason was is because Freiburg was worried that Kirk had, or Shatner hadn't conveyed enough of the emotions in the scene to convey what's happening. So they put the voiceover on this. Suddenly a way out appears with some stairs and lights and Kirk emerges from the obelisk to find uh, just as two native women walk by. They bow to him. Who are you? He asks. We are your people, she says, and we have been waiting for you. Captain's luck, stardate 4843.6. Spock tells us that they are now en route to the asteroid for several hours and that they took too much time on the planet and now we are zipping at maxi maximum warp uh, to get to the deflector spot on time. Scott says, hey, can we slow down a little bit? And Spock's like, no, we're not going to make it in time if we don't. He notes Scott's objections, but he tells them to carry on. So here's a, um, we get back to the planet. We're in the room with the chief and the new medicine guy and Miramani and Kirk. And there, this is just one, talk about dense. This is one line of dialogue that tells us almost everything we need to know. Miramani said that you, uh, you appeared to her and her handmaiden for the, uh, from the walls of the temple, just as our legend foretells. We will not doubt the words of our priestess, but these are troubled times and we must be sure. So we got Miramani's name, the woman, mm -hmm. and yep. her handmaiden, which means she's a lady of some importance. The walls of the temple, the obelisk. So now they think it's some kind of temple. We know that. As the legend foretells, okay, that's important to know for later. <laughs> uh, but we will not doubt the word of our priestess. Okay, so that's what she is in these troubled times, whatever those are. Uh, but we must be sure. I love yeah. it. It's so great. Yeah, so there's all kinds of, this is how you do world building, right? Right. Is you, know, you put all that stuff in there and you don't like make that scene take 10 minutes so that you can do, oh, she's a priestess. Look, they've done a ceremony. Oh, she's a uh, lady of some and She has uh, attendance. Oh, <laughs> you keep yeah. going on. Exactly. But it's also a blink and you'll miss it. Uh, yep. Or if you do miss it, it's not going to ruin the episode. That's right. Yeah. Who is that lady? I never understood that lady. <laughs> Wait, you were getting your ice water, Harold. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. Uh, Kirk says he will try to find, uh, he will try and answer their questions, but things are new and different to me. The medicine man pipes up by saying, see, he doesn't even know of our danger. That must be those troubled times we were talking about. How can he help? How can he help us when the skies darken? So what does that mean? The asteroid? It kind of means the asteroid, but it also kind of means whatever this weird thunderstorm is that happens. He must prove he is a god, says the medicine chief. The actual chief says the ones who planted us here will bring us someone to will bring someone to save us. I guess that's Kirk. The skies have darkened three times, hurting or killing our crops each time, and they want Kirk to help. Kirk, still trying to understand the jumble of his thoughts in his brains, said, I did come from the temple, but I came from the sky too. But he can't remember. Miramani then walks in holding a boy who has apparently drowned. Kirk uses some version of CPR to yeah, he, bring the boy back. So uh, he uses an older technique. Okay. Which is funny to watch because it's one of those, you know, the, the future is the past kind of a... Yes. Why are you using an old technique for CPR <laughs> yep. in the 23rd century? Well, CPR was developed in the 1960s, I looked up, but uh, I guess the uh, the way we know it now wasn't in full use yet, or... Yeah, there was some uh, some development of that new procedure. I guess so. Well, Kirk even says, too, it's like an old... Well, I guess it's hard to tell from him which what is old. <laughs> but even he says, like, this is an old version of how to bring someone back to life. Uh, the medicine chief looks over the boy, but he hears no sound inside him. Then Kirk, using the CPR, brings the boy back to life. And the chief says... Only gods can bring uh, life back in, back from the dead. The medicine, uh, the medicine man is dumbstruck as if the chief, as the chief tells the medicine chief to give him give the medicine badge to Kirk. He also he tells him to slow your roll. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a bad day for medicine men. Kirk even looks like he doesn't want to take it or he shouldn't take it. And an even stronger wave of embarrassment happens when uh, Miramani, we find out the medicine man's um, former girlfriend. Intended. <laughs> yes, intended. Is the one who takes it off of him and puts it on Kirk. Uh, we close the scene on the medicine man, who is not a happy camper. Oh, no. Back it's on the Enterprise. Brush, say. Yes, yes, exactly. Back on the Enterprise, they are finally approaching the asteroid. Sulu gets to use that new viewer thing that we saw in the first episode of the season. Scott is afraid to give full power to deflectors, but does as he's ordered. So it's interesting. You were talking about the B story, and I knew I had notes in here. I just couldn't remember what they were. Um, you were talking about the A-B story. The thing is, so we talk a lot about, like, A, whether or not an episode should have a B story or shouldn't have a B story. Right. Um, and also, you know, good and bad examples of it. I guess you didn't like this example as a B story or you just. I, I thought it was fine. I mm -hmm. just felt like the whole idea that it's either we either stay and look for the captain or we go. Oh, wow. On our 400 man ship. It, it's like, well, we, we can come back later. Well, if we're coming back, let's leave a search crew. Right, exactly. I How think that's obvious. Anywhere? Yeah, that's not like a. 
No, it's a good point. Why not do that? I think it's good. I think it's a good B story in that it's uh, simple enough that you don't want to make a whole episode with the B story, right? right, so right. Sometimes the B stories can get a little too complicated, and then you're like, this is only supposed to, you know, fill like 10 minutes worth of screen time. It's not supposed yeah. to be the, you know, something extra complicated. So I think that's kind of what's perfect about it is that it's just it's just easy enough to understand and but also affects the A story in, so, a, in a good uh, way. In this uh, year of, of Get Back, 1969, mm -hmm. yep. one of the things that the Beatles did uh, frequently is have double A-side singles. Mm -hmm. Which is then, like, how do you measure the sale of a double A-side? Because <laughs> there's an obvious A and a B, yeah. right? People are only Beatles fans know the B-side. You know, regular people are like, I only know the A side. Yeah, it's obvious what sold the record. But when it's uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, well, <laughs> you know, that's a double A side, my friends. Right. And that you, you don't want to have two competing stories that are both vying for being the A story. But again, when that piece, when the B story can tip off, you know affect what happens in in the a story it's perfect yeah would it, would it just enough to drive some drive some plot yep get seinfeld to the chinese theater that's right restaurant yes <laughs> so they use the <laughs> where you can watch schindler's list <laughs> right exactly <laughs> Uh, they use the deflectors on the asteroid, which in this version is a beam. I'm just going to chalk that up to 60s TV. We have to see what deflectors are. We can't just say, like, yeah, they're sort of an invisible thing that we just send off from the I think we get, we get particle nonsense coming out of them in Next Generation. Do we? Okay. I'm crazy, then. I think anyway, it's the one of the reasons we end up making the little balls of light rather than golden dishes mm, mm -hmm. so that we can send out particles from them. So the deflectors don't work and Spock wants to now fire phasers into the asteroid and split it in half. But first, we have to move the Enterprise between the planet and the asteroid. This, by the way, is a, is a thing that does not work. You're still sending just as much mass into the planet. Exactly. You're merely distributing it over a wider area in theory. Which may well, be worse. Maybe he's hoping it'll like split around the planet or something. It's a gravity well. <laughs> oh, good point, good point, good point. Yeah, so like uh, any kind of review of the movie Armageddon, where they go up there and detonate it with a nuke, right. they're like, yeah, this won't do anything. <laughs> just, just blowing it up. Just changing the arrangement of the mass mm -hmm. from a solid thing into a... Now, if you were to, let's say, break it into lots of small pieces that would all burn up in the atmosphere... Right. Okay. Okay. But, you know, like, if you just made it two big chunks, yeah, that's not really going to help. That's probably not going to do it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he thinks he can bounce one off the other and, like, get a pool ball effect. Right, just... Yeah. 
Before going to commercial, McCoy must remind us that Kirk is also in the path of that asteroid. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. Back at it. Miramani is met by the medicine man who asks, uh, what are you doing? Uh, making new clothes for our new god. She must see to the needs of him, as is her duty. A little bit of dialogue here. You should be working on our ritual cloak. There will be no ritual cloak. You can't break tradition. It is because of tradition that I can't marry you. But the priestess and the medicine man are always joined. He is the medicine chief now. So there, you got that. Then the medicine man asks, if you could choose me, would you choose me? She says nothing and walks away. Whoa, Miramani is cold as ice. <laughs> Leaving that guy hanging there. Holy cow. She then appears in Kirk's tent, asking if he needs to bathe. He turns it down. Instead, he asks her to <laughs> instead he asks her to tell him about the wise ones. She says, Don't the gods know everything? <laughs> Not this one, he says. So she does. She tells them that the wise ones placed them here, but they are from far away. They picked a medicine man to use the temple every time the sky darkens to fix the skies. But Salish's father, Salish the medicine man, his father died before he told his son. So it sounds like uh, Salish, Salish's father was just as big an a-hole as uh, Salish is. Well, so this is a, an actual problem in uh, these kinds of societies, right? So... Right. Um, People are spending enough time, like, doing the everyday stuff that investing in the future, let's say, school, right, is something that is very, like, very small, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. We're not going to send everyone to school to learn a bunch of stuff and then not start hunting and gathering until we're in our 20s because then right. no one will know anything. And then we'll all die. Because, uh, you know, the, the lifespans and so forth. So, in North America, the coming of the Europeans and the spreading of their diseases, and the diseases move much faster than the Europeans themselves, mm -hmm. right? Such that you have the Spanish in the Caribbean area, will include Florida, the South Gulf Coast, where some explorations went, and then Mexico. And yet, smallpox is devastating people in New England prior to the English showing up. Right. Right. So, you imagine a society full of these medicine men, and then smallpox comes and devastates a significantly large portion of the population that those guys all end up dead. And it's one of the reasons that when the Europeans finally do get to some place, they're like, wow, these were very primitive people because their civilization had, in a sense, collapsed. Mm. It was a loss of knowledge and things just, people having to move to much simpler life ways because they had lost their own technology by, by this process that uh, we see in this episode. Interesting. Reminds me, I just watched a YouTube video about, and this is something that I had honestly already thought of, because, like, all right, quick side note on all of this is that I've always wondered why we go from, like, these great, like, Greek and Roman, you know, civilizations to then suddenly, like, the Dark Ages where, like, you know, 
Klaus, there's some lovely filth down here. You know, (laughs) it's like, you know, people are living in mud huts essentially and, you know, everything else. And so like the question that was raised in this YouTube video is like, what happened to like the concrete? What happened to concrete? Like, why aren't we using it anymore? And, you know, part of it was just like expense, but, you know, part of it was that they just weren't building things like, you know, aqueducts and, and and those things that like people were using concrete for in the in the in the past that they were so you could you could look at our society and go you know you can walk through a city like austin or houston and you can see all these cool old buildings with ornaments and you know stonework and you're like how come they don't make buildings like that anymore and one of the reasons is nobody knows how because mm. once we started building in glass and steel those guys didn't have jobs anymore Interesting. So there was no one apprenticing them. Right. And so to do that, we basically have to start from scratch. And that would be way more expensive than like if there were a bunch of guys just waiting to work on the next building. Yeah. So even even in our high tech society, we can lose that kind of knowledge. Right. Okay. Um, The chief arrives bringing Kirk uh, way too much food, by the way, like three platters worth of food. I didn't crazy. know what you'd like, so I brought everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, he asks Kirk what he would like to be called, but Kirk quite can't quite remember his name. I like this as a story point. I like that like everything that Kirk re- should remember is like on the tip of his, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, yeah. it's so much, I'm sure for the actor, it's so much more to play, you know, yeah, than yeah. just being like, I don't know. Call me something, you know. Call <laughs> me Larry. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas, you know, opposed to this, it's like, I mean, I sort of remember a phaser. I know I come from the sky. Like, I, you know, it, later we find out about the dreams that he's having, people he should know. I think that that's all like a really cool story point that it's something that a lot of like amnesia tropes don't do, right? A lot of the time when you have an amnesia trope, it's just like, I don't know. I forgot. Let's move on. I started this new life. I can't remember I, anything I about the old one. The new. Let's just ditch the old. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so they decide to call him Karuk, because that's about as close as Kirk could get. Well, you could see how that happens, right? Because we have all these Chinese names where you, mm-hmm. you're like, uh, you know, there's the old style, like Beijing uh, and Peking, right? Right. you like, some guy says the name of the, his town, and we're like, uh, that sounds like Peking to me. And then it's actually more like Beijing. And that's what happens here with Kirk and Karuk. Ah, Karuk makes sense to me. That sounds like a person's name. Kirk, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Can you center yourself just a little bit again? Perfect. Okay, great. Um, let's see. The chief then asks if the god is displeased with them. But Kirk says, no. He is happy and at peace, and it seems like, uh, and it feels like it's the first time in his life that he's felt that way. The chief, happy with that answer, exits. Kirk asks, why are they so sure that he can help them? You came from the stone metal, she says. You brought life back to the boy. Again, here we see Kirk on the verge of remembering simple answers to all of that, but but he, he can't quite remember it. She says, here, there is so much time for everything. She says, petting Kirk. I wonder what she means. Back on the ship, the Enterprise is now uh, in between the planet and the asteroid. They fire phasers four times. 
five times. But suddenly, in engineering, the engines have failed. And there was lots and lots of, you know, Scotty warning Spock. Right. Listen, I'm redlining it here. They even show the engine room all glowing red. Right, yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, this does not look good. Yeah, it looked like many explosions happening inside that engine. Yeah, this uh, this totally gives you that Galileo Seven feel. Mm-hmm. Back on the planet, Kirk has changed into native clothes. <laughs> so it's so funny on some of the close-ups. Uh, now we're looking at like a cross between like season one William Shatner and T.J. Hooker. <laughs> William yeah, Shatner. yeah. It's very interesting. And I, honestly, I think part of it has to do with the sideburns because they're a bit a little bit thicker now. They're a little bit bushier. Whereas before they were just like down to a point and, and shaved. Now they're, I don't know, that. And he's probably just gained a little bit more weight. Like, yep. you know, continues to happen going into TJ Hooker and the movies. <clears throat> anyway, Miramani says uh, that she wants to name the joining day, the day that those two will be joined together. Kirk's like, what? (laughs) She reiterates that it is her job as the chief's daughter. Okay, so I guess she's that too. uh, To join with him. They name tomorrow as the day and they kiss. Back on the Enterprise, Scott tells Spock that the engines are totally kaput and that all he has is impulse engines. So it's interesting that we're in this situation because... Like, I feel like, can't we, can't we just, A, can't we just call another ship in? Like, hey, can you bring us some parts so we can, you know, yeah. get this working or something or help Although us they, out? They do establish in these things that they're so far out on the edge mm. that, like, getting stuff would be a really long way. Well, if it's just two months to fly from where they are back to the planet, how long is it going to oh, be yeah. before they can even get to another solar system? Yeah. Yeah, so they're kind of stuck. Right. Yeah. They're, they're at sub-light, which means traveling to, say, the next star system at five to seven light years is going to take, you know, I don't know, how fast, how how much do you want to screw with the fact that if they start traveling at high relativistic speeds, 0.5 light speed, 0.75 light speed, that they're not going to like, oh, we've all our children have grown and died. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. We spent years traveling at, at relativistic speeds, and now... <laughs> so I guess if you were traveling at, at a short distance, let's say the five to seven light years, you're really only going to screw things up by like four or five years. Mm-hmm. By going real fast, but still. Yeah. There are reasons that you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Exactly. Bones then is here to remind Spock that his calculated risk didn't work. And it's funny because I was wondering that if Kirk had done done this, what Bones would have said. But then I realized that it really just depended if anyone got left on the planet. Like if it was Spock that was left on the planet and Kirk took this risk, I still imagine Bones would have said the same thing either way. Way to go. Now you've, you know, you've left Spock on that planet. Kirk. Anyway, Spock, you left Kirk on that planet. <laughs> right, right, right. Now it's the other. But I was thinking, even if it was the other way. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, Spock tells Chekhov to head back to the planet uh, with the asteroid four hours behind them the whole way. It's going to take 59 days for the ship to get there. While McCoy has been ranting, Spock has been trying to decipher the obelisk. Another calculated Vulcan risk, he says. Back on the planet, the day of the joining has come, and Kirk is getting ready by the obelisk. I have found paradise, he says. Surely no man has found such happiness. Kirk, on his way back, gets jumped by Salish, and they fight. Kirk doesn't want to fight him, but uh, the former medicine man goes after him anyway. Sal uh, Salish slashes at him and Kirk deflects. But the blade got his hand and Kirk bleeds. Behold, yells the medicine chief, a god who bleeds. Yeah, I don't know why, why this is always such a big deal. Right? I don't know why you don't think gods would bleed. I just imagine that they would have like super healing. Right. That it would, that it would be, yeah, I bleed, but then like, it, it's a flesh wound. It's like, I'll be fine tomorrow, or you can't kill me. Right. You could wound me. Although, I mean, you look at Christianity, and even Jesus was bleeding, you know, at the towards the end of it all. So, come on, uh, God's gonna bleed. Although he was God made man. That's true. It's like it's like I guess if you bled like a golden fluid, people would be like, "Ooh, <laughs> that'd be cool." We are dealing with aliens, so I guess cutting Spock would be like, oh, he is a god. It's green. <laughs> he bleeds green. So that sends us to commercial. Back in it, Salish says it again. Behold, a god who bleeds. Because, you know, people forgot what happened from the last, <laughs> from the three minutes ago when we had commercials. The fight continues, but Kirk wins. Salish just tells Karuk, to kill him. But Karuk, as he does so many times, just throws the knife away. Sailor says, I will not stop until I prove to my people you are not a god. And Kirk just walks away. We enter the joining tent and the ceremony begins. Back on the Enterprise, it's been 58 days. Spock is continuing to decipher the obelisk, but he's running himself into exhaustion. Bones comes in and even says, you're blaming yourself like we blamed you. We were wrong. Jim would have done the same thing, which is, you know, just what I said. Bones demands that he get some rest or he'll call security to enforce it. How? How's security going to enforce it? Going to tie Spock down on the bed? What's going to happen here? Well, this is another, another Star Trek trope, right? That uh, McCoy gives people uh, rest orders. And both Kirk and Spock reliably ignore them. Yes. And, and Star Trek takes time to show us how they ignore them. Mm -hmm. He does I indeed like... It's always like McCoy's got to like inject people with sedatives. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, Which he doesn't do here. Very well. Well, so that's actually kind of what I thought was going to happen was is that like Spock was actually going to get some sleep and in his sleep, he imagined what the, you know, how to decipher the obelisk. But that's not in fact what he does. We could have had a dream sequence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Little man from another place talking backwards. <laughs> uh, 
I was going to try and do it, but I'm not. Okay. The, the planet you like will go out of style. <laughs> <laughs> The cipher is music. Bones leaves, uh, and Spock uh, gets up then, immediately, uh, putting himself in front of a screen. But now, what about eye fatigue? Come on, Spock. Back on the planet, 58 days later, I guess, Kirk and Miramani are running around chasing each other. I wrote, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it's it's... It's I like just imagine an idyllic play, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, the creators here are trying to show their connection. <laughs> but I write, I've never chased Jamie around in the woods and we go hiking all the time. <laughs> right, but like they're playing, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's right. the opposite of serious work. They're not like crap. I mean, they could be you know, crafting together, cooking together, you know, uh, farming together building right. that irrigation thing that Kirk's come up with together. No, no, yeah. no, they're playing like children because it's idyllic. I mean, because what else are you going to do when you don't have books or books to read or TV to watch, right? You're just going <laughs> to find road. your own fun. Shirtless Shatner and Miramani kiss and make out. He's so happy. Except for those dreams I was talking about. The object in the sky. I feel my places with the not here. I don't deserve this happiness, he says. Yeah, so like, let's think about that for a minute, right? The, so there's an argument that like real happiness, Aristotelian happiness, okay. right? Is having lived the good life, having, you know, been a member of your community, like been a good social animal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not hedonistic. That having enjoyed all the pleasures is not real happiness. Okay. And that seems to be Star Trek's point of view, right? That too much pleasure is not happiness. <laughs> and that we should reject, like, this idea, like, I'm playing. I'm running through the fields chasing the girl. <laughs> this isn't, like, ultimately satisfying. Right. It's fun. But you need to get back to work. Yeah. Come on. This is a socialist society here. We can't have people running around in trees. Got to get back on the bridge of that ship. That's right. Everyone has to work very hard. Exactly. Uh, she tells, uh, Miramani tells Kirk that she has a surprise for him. I bear your child, she says. Back in their tent, Kirk is teaching Miramani about irrigation and lamps and preserving food when famine hits. I mean, let's talk about breaking the prime directive here. Suddenly, the thunder hits. The music tells us that we should be worried. This is bad. I mean, this is only a thunderstorm, right? Miramani tells Kirk that we have to go to the temple. Why? He asks. There will be people waiting. Looks like Kirk's got to put up or shut for up what? here. <laughs> waiting for what? I don't understand. Yeah, what am I supposed to do? Uh, Kirk tells her he doesn't know how to get into the temple. But you are a god, she says. Kirk waffles on this. Like he's about to say, um, about that. <laughs> I'm a starship captain, and I don't have a starship right now. That's right. But instead, the chief and Salish run into the tent demanding his help. Kirk suggests, uh, maybe we can go hide in the caves. But the chief says, it's no safer in there. Kirk then heads to the temple with nothing left to lose. 
he gets to the obelisk and beats on it while Salish watches. I am Kuruk, he screams into the wind. I am Kuruk. Salish with a smug grin as we cut to commercial. Yeah, like, like he it. knows what to do. Right. Yeah, apparently he doesn't either, so. So we have a shot here of the Enterprise in front of the um in front of the in, uh, in front of the asteroid but the ship is still facing the asteroid but they're still returning to the planet are they flying backwards i don't know what's happening in this yeah so they're they're basically flying backwards because they want the front of the ship pointed toward the asteroid so that you can see that it can shoot at it or whatever right but okay. They're going in the opposite direction. You know, given that the, there are weapons in 360 direct, you know, degrees direction around the ship, there's no reason it couldn't be pointed at any angle and moving that way. I guess that's a good point. There is no real reverse. Yeah. Bones enters Spock's room, expecting him to be sleeping, but instead, Spock is playing with his loot. They are not an alphabet, says Spock the glyphs, but they are instead musical notes. The obelisk is a marker from a super race known as the Preservers. They found primitive cultures in the galaxy and are seeding them uh, with life to help them live and grow. I do feel like, where did you get this information? <laughs> right? He was playing the notes and somehow deciphered it still? I don't know. So that's where Bone says, well, that's why there are so many humanoids in the galaxy. Back on the planet, the natives have turned restless. LOLOL. <laughs> Salish has proclaimed that Kuruk is a false god, and they start throwing stones at him. None too soon, McCoy and Spock arrive. As they rush to the temple, the natives flee in fear, wondering if they were wrong, and now the gods have shown up to, and appeared to condemn them. Bones kneels next to Kirk and calls for Chapel, who beams down. Kirk calls out for his wife. His wife? Asks Bones. Yeah, yeah. Chapel beans down and tends to Miramani. Spock then talks to Miramani, uh, but she's not in good shape. Bones tells Spock that Kirk is okay, except for his memory. It's going to take time. Time is a luxury we do not have. Then Sulu calls down and lets him know that we've only got five more minutes. Five more minutes till what? I don't, I don't know. Is the asteroid going to hit in five minutes? I thought he was four hours behind. What's happening? So again, we call upon Spock to do what they call in this episode the Vulcan Mind Fusion. I, I wrote that down. I'm like, what the heck? This is some early season weirdness in right? season three. We've called it the Vulcan Mind Meld before. A lot. Yes. <laughs> and that's like, and why are we suddenly calling it fusion instead of meld? I have no idea. It's craziness. Uh, so he does it. Kirk, in the middle of the mind fusion, says, <laughs> I am Kuruk. And Spock says, I am Spock! Not knowing that he would later write a book in which he called himself Spock. He also wrote a book, I am not Spock. Exactly. He wrote that one first. And then the mind meld ends. What's wrong? Asked Bones. He is... 
an extremely dynamic individual. <laughs> I love that. Kirk sits up. He is now himself again. He is, of course, worried about Miramani. But Spock tells him, we must get inside. We are out of time. Talking it through, Kirk realizes that if it's their tone they're looking for, the door must have opened when he called the Enterprise. Kirk opens the communicator. The noises go. And Kirk says, Kirk to Enterprise. And the door magically opens. He tells Scotty that if the deflector isn't raised in 20 minutes to get the hell out of Dodge. Two thoughts I have on that. Why do we now have 20 minutes when we had five minutes earlier? Confusion. And second of all, why didn't I think about the phrase get the hell out of Dodge when we were doing Spectre of the Gun? Damn, missed opportunity. Kirk spends another moment with Miramani before heading into the temple. Spock then explains that the panel is complex and that the glyphs seem to suggest that if we press these in the right order, Kirk's like, just press the button. So he does. And the deflector works, pushing the asteroid away. Back in their tent, Miramani is dying. Bad internal injuries, says Bones, despite the fact that Kirk took, <laughs> took way more rocks to his body than this one did. She must be a true delicate flower. We then get a very sad scene of her dying. She tells Kirk that she will always love him, and he responds in kind. He kisses her again. And she says, each kiss is as the first. Like she said about hugs earlier when they were running around in the forest. And then she passes away. And that's where this episode ends. On Kirk looking at Miramani's body, before we suddenly get this unneeded and very distracting cut of the Enterprise leaving orbit. With everything oh. they did in the opening scene, they should have just left it on Kirk and Miramani. I yep. think that would have yep. been a stronger ending. I agree, because uh, you had the bookends of everything happening on the planet. Exactly. I do want to say that uh, the shots of the ship in space were gorgeous in this episode. They, they were very nice. They were very nice. I know that's your thing, so. <laughs> so let's talk about ratings here real quick. CBS bought ad space in newspapers, TV magazines, and TV Guide when promoting their movie. NBC, of course, did nothing to promote the Paradise Syndrome. Regardless, Star Trek was still in a strong second place and pulled in a 30 share meaning that nearly one-third of the TV sets in use were turned to NBC. Just what you'd expect in a three-network environment. Right, exactly. However, just imagine if they would have promoted it, what might have happened? It'd have uh, been over budget! <laughs> so, uh, even though director Judd Taylor brought in the production... Oh, I haven't done the math on this yet. But even though uh, director Judd Taylor brought it, the production in on schedule, the first episode of the season was done in six days. But the price tag came in at 193000 That was $15,200 over the allocated budget for third season episodes. Oops. In total, now $21,200. Star Trek was already in the red. Yeah, we get a we get a gorgeous uh, location shoot. Yes, exactly. That's one of the that's one of the beauty things of this episode. I think that they used it uh, very well as very well as well. That's what I was going to say, but I think they used it very well. So that means that in twenty twenty two money, that they would be. $175,146 $175, in debt 
already for the season. So again, as we've discussed in now Star Trek money, that's not very uh, that's not very much. But of course, back then, it's a big load of money. Well, and it's it's still a small fraction of a episode, mm-hmm. right? So you, you know what you have to do is you have to figure out well, who do we who do we have to pay? What are our fixed costs? Right, right. So we probably have to pay all of our main stars. Does that include Chekhov? Does that include Sulu? Does that include Uhura? It certainly doesn't include anybody else staying in the background. So, you know, you, you can, because you could do episodes in which Chekhov and Sulu aren't at their stations. We have unnamed person A and unnamed person B who have no line to this episode. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there are things you could begin to do. And then, you know, you do a ship in the bottle. You only show, you don't, you don't, redress or you don't do anything you would just use the sets we got yeah i mean what's like the cheapest you could make star trek it's eclipse episode (laughs) (laughs) uh the paradise syndrome was one of the third season episodes that william shatner deemed as extremely good freiberger on the other hand said quite frankly i wasn't happy with that show it didn't come out as well as i had expected i don't know that was pretty good Exactly. Margaret Armin countered that if Gene Rodberry had still been producing, this episode would have come out way better. But who can say? People still love it. Um, and I understand that the sponsors' wives adored it. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. Well, here we are. Uh, like I said, I think that we are three for three in episodes. I think that so far we're off to a great start. And next week, we get the Enterprise incident, which I know is another fantastic episode. So... We're going to be four for four by the end of next week. It's going to be exciting. So there there is some sad news for next week. Uh Oh, they have lost the model for the Rodman Warbird. Oh, really? They can't find it. They don't know where it's at. Whoops. Yep. Wow. Well, I guess it's good then we got the remastered versions to watch. No, no, because we have an in-story explanation for why they're suddenly in Klingon ships. Oh, okay. That's funny. Whoops. Yep. All right. Well, hey, you guys uh, listening can all look forward to that in two weeks when we talk about the Enterprise incident. Uh, Anything else you've got that we didn't cover in this episode? No, I think we're good. We checked it all. We talked about the Vulcan mind fusion. I mean, what else do we got? (laughs) All right. Well, coming uh, coming to you from Austin, it's me, Matt, saying goodbye, and saying goodbye from Planet Houston to my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. I'm a doctor, not a tour director. <laughs> and on that note, we'll see you all in two weeks. <laughs>